0: I want to invite you then to turn to Matthew's Gospel, and you'll find it on page 807, if you're using the Church Black Bibles, page 807, large print, 959, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel. <clears throat> Let's hear God's Word together. The book and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, (coughs) excuse me, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So, all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. Amen. I want to begin with these words from John Stott. Listen to this. John Stott said this, Jesus' claims for himself are very disturbing. What Jesus claimed for himself is very disturbing because it is so self-centered. And yet, and yet, in his behavior, he was clothed with humility. Okay, so here's John Stott's words. Jesus' claims sound proud But he was humble. I see this paradox at its sharpest when he was with his disciples in the upper room before he died. He said he was their Lord and their teacher and their judge, but he took a towel, he got on his hands and knees, and he washed their feet like a common slave. Is this not unique in the history of the world? Think about it. There have been lots of arrogant people but they have all behaved like it. They've acted arrogantly. There have also been humble people, but they have not made great claims for themselves. No, it is the combination of egocentricity and humility in Jesus that is so startling. The egocentricity of His teaching and the humility of His behavior Now, I want to ask you this morning as we begin to remember those two things side by side, the egocentricity of Jesus' claims, His teaching, and the humility of what He actually does. Keep those two things in your mind. Park them for a moment. We're going to come back to them in in a few moments. We'll come back later on in this sermon. And I want you to remember both of those things, not just for this morning, but throughout this sermon series, as we begin a new series in Matthew's gospel, for we're going to come back to both of them again and again and again in what Matthew says. Friends, this morning we are about to meet a man who made the grandest, the greatest of claims for himself, self-centered, self-exalting claims what Stott calls the egocentricity of his teaching, but side by side with those claims, the personal actions of the common slave. Oh, it is a stunning combination, a stunning combination. Oh, so high, so transcendent, so exalted, so lifted up. Oh, so lowly, so humble, And I want you to hold both of these things in your mind because I want to lead you to them this morning from this text, a text that I've called, a sermon that I've called, The King with Two Fathers. That sermon title, it comes from the opening words of the gospel. That title is all there in verse 1. I wonder if you spotted it in verse 1. The King and Father 1 and Father 2 all there. So, I have three very simple things to show us this morning, and I think we want simplicity, don't we, with a genealogy. Most of you, I know, are sitting listening to the genealogy being read, and more than you normally think, you're thinking, I'm glad it's him up there, not me. What are we going to do with these names? Don't skip them, friends, when you turn to them in your Bible reading let's go slow and simple. Three points. Number one, Jesus is King. Jesus is King. Verse 1 says that Jesus is King. And and it says those three words in English with two words that are in verse 1 in your Bible, Jesus Christ. So, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the Anointed One. So when you look at that, those two words side by side, Jesus Christ, Jesus is His name, but Christ is His title. Christ is not His surname. It's like saying, Jesus monarch, or Jesus regent, that the second word of title shines the light on the first word of name. The person called Jesus is the King. So, so, friends, what we're beginning this morning is the book of the king, the, 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 the genealogy of the king, the record of the king. This is the king's book. Think of it like this. You and I are sitting down week by week in church to the crown, week by week. It's not on Netflix, not, not on screen, n- not, not TV episodes, but story episodes. And straight away in verse 1, we're going in one of John Stott's two directions, aren't we? The the, the direction that is so captivating about Him, He is more than us. He is King. He he is like you and me, and He is not like you and me. Now, I want you just to turn to the very end of the gospel. It can often be uh, helpful to do this. Turn right to the very end, Matthew 28. I don't I don't have a page number, but if you have Matthew open, you can flick right to the very end. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, here is the Lord Jesus' final words. Jesus came and said to them, to his 11 disciples, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just look at the opening again, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know, I don't know who your favorite politician is, but if your favorite politician ever said out loud on television as they're campa- campaigning for your vote? Can you imagine it if they said, <clears throat> here's why I want you to vote for me. All authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. But I hope they're not going to get your vote anymore. He, here, is what, here is where we see what John Stop means. Is Jesus a megalomaniac? Who speaks like this? Who says this? I want to ask you as we begin this sermon series, I want to ask how big your Jesus is this morning. How big is He? Now, many of us, if I ask you that, we want to say, don't we, we want to say He's really big. Of course, He's really big. We, we know who He is. We love Him. We praise Him. We adore Him. We're, we're so happy to be here singing to Him. We love the Lord Jesus as Lord and God. But here's the thing. You can tell how big Jesus is in your heart when you set Jesus beside your problems. When you put Jesus beside, well, take your pick, your greatest fears, your greatest sorrows, your greatest struggles? How, how big does Jesus look then? Who, who has more power, your fears or Jesus? Your unknown future or Jesus? Your past or the Lord Jesus? In other, friends, as, in other words, friends, as 2024 begins here is a chance for you and I this morning to recalibrate the throne room of our lives. We are meeting the King this morning. Jesus is King, not me. Jesus is King, not me. Do you ever say that to yourself? Your your feet touch the floor when you get out of bed in the morning. Jesus is King, not me. Oh, it can change your, your entire day. I think just about all the problems of my life and my sleepless nights and my petty hurts and many of my deepest fears, they are all addressed, aren't they, by laying on my heart, laying to my heart and into my heart the reality of my life that Jesus rules the throne room of my life, not me. Now, now there's even more in those opening words. We're going to come to them in just a moment. But I want you to meet the two fathers this morning, and here's the first one. Jesus the King has a father called David. The King has a father called David, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. And so here's how I want to put it. Point number one, Jesus is King. Point number two, Jesus is King forever. Jesus is king forever. In the Bible, calling a king the son of David, calling a king the son of David means that you're asking one question. Is this the son we've been waiting for? Is this God's forever king? That's what you hear when you hear son of David. See, that the point of these two names, son of David, son of Abraham, the point is to tie the title to the great promises of the Bible. And the great promises of the Bible were bound up with both David and with Abraham, so that the moment you say the phrase, son of David, immediately everybody knows what you mean. Now, now, let me illustrate it like this. Let's say you meet a man called Hamish Wallace, okay? And as you meet Hamish Wallace, you notice he is big and red-haired and hairy, and he's wearing a kilt, and he says to you, I'm Hamish Wallace. I am William Wallace's son, if you don't know who William Wallace is, this might be a little bit, a little bit lost on you. William, William Wallace, one of Scotland's greatest, most powerful characters in the past, all-conquering warrior. And Hamish Wallace says to you, I am William Wallace's son. Ah, you say immediately, you say, I get it. Of, of course, l- look at you. You look Scottish. You sound Scottish. You dress Scottish. And then he says to you, I am William Wallace's son, and I love the English. I love the English. In fact, Essex is my favorite place. <laughs> I vote conservative in every election. Now, now, what's happening to you when you hear that? No, no you say, it. It, it does not compute what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing. It doesn't work. The very mention of being a son of William Wallace... I know what you must be about you are against the english and for scotland surely see that the very name the very name wallace doesn't it carry a world of symbolism it's got a world of hopes and longings and national longings all bound up in that name. The name carries a torch from the past into the present, doesn't it? So that to be a son of that man surely means you must be this sort of man. Friends, so it is with David. So it is with David in the Bible to say this king has David for his father. Immediately, Matthew's first readers sit up and listen. Oh, we know that name. We know what that name means. Listen to these words. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We did this last Christmas, didn't we? I know these are embedded deep in your mind and heart. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Just listen. The promise. When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you're gone, when you're dead, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, your family line. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now listen, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Oh, friends, you hear the name David you hear the name David and immediately the forever word fills the air. Forever fills the air and hangs there like sweet incense. Forever is like a one-word benediction traveling through the corridors of time. For Jesus to be the son of David means he is this forever king. He is king. He is king forever. Matthew has really beautiful ways of making this point. Just look at some of them. There are three sections in this genealogy, aren't there? Verse 2 down to verse 6, Abraham to David. Then David down to verse 11, the deportation to Babylon. And then the the deportation to Babylon all the way through to Christ and David is in the middle. Remember what we've seen often, Hebrew thought, you put the most important thought in the middle, not at the end. And the point about David's section, verses 6 down to verse 11, the point about David's section is that in that section, everything is going wrong. It's all going in the wrong direction from Solomon all the way down through Well, you get to to Joram. You get to Joram, the brother-killing king, Murdering his own family. You get to Manasseh, the child-sacrificing king, all the way to the deportation to Babylon. Friends, the deportation to Babylon, verse 11: if one thing looked like it was the end of the forever promise, it was exile. Your house, David, will endure forever. There will be a king on your throne forever. Look at it, there isn't even a throne left. The temple raised. To the ground, the city destroyed, men, women, and children deported to a foreign land. Oh, there is no forever king here. No hope. And yet, look, verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, the line carries on Ah, God has not finished yet. The promise has not fallen. He has not forgotten his promise all the way down to Jesus. Now, look at verse 17. It's worth just pausing to look at this. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Nobody really knows why Matthew has written Jesus' family tree like this. We all know, if you were to go through the Old Testament chronologically, bit by bit, And Matthew knows that in each case there are actually more than 14 generations from Abraham to David and and so on and so on. Each time Matthew is taking the biblical history and he's summarizing the generations with 14 standout names. Now, why 14? Here's the answer. No one really knows. No one really knows. I've read everything I can possibly find on it this week, and that's my conclusion. Nobody really knows, but here's two ideas. It's amazing what Matthew might be doing here. In Hebrew, individual letters, as well as making up words the way that our letters make up individual words, in Hebrew, individual letters don't just make up words. Each letter has a numerical value attached to it. So, the name David has only three consonants in it. In Hebrew, no vowels originally in the text. Three consonants. And each of, the, each of the consonants has a numerical value attached to it. So the name is DVD. And the numerical value of D V D D D is 4, V is 6, and D is 4 again. The, the numerical value of David's name is 14. 14, three letters to equal one number, 14. Matthew has given us three sections of Israelite history, like the three consonants of David's name, with David himself in the middle, each one adding up to the total number of David's name. Now, here's a second theory. Here's the one I I like the most. Some of you might have Tim Keller's book on uh, Christmas, Christmas sermons. This is the one Tim Keller goes for. It's all to do with the number seven in the Bible. Some of you know this. The number seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. So when you look at verse 17 and see that there are three fourteens, well, fourteen is two sevens. And then two more, and then two more. You have six sevens. So there have been six sevens until Jesus, who is what? The seventh seven the most perfect perfection, the ultimate perfection. Do you notice how in verse 17, after Christ, the family tree stops? There are no more generations to follow. He's the last in line. Now that we've reached Him, it's as if Matthew is saying, like on the seventh day, God rested and that day never ended. So with the coming of Christ, here is ultimate rest. Now, all of that might sound a little bit odd and strange to us, but think of it this way. It's like, it's like writing a poem about the might and the wonder and the majesty of William Wallace. You, you could write a poem about who he is, and you could take real, true, literal people from Scotland's past and put them all together into a, a beautiful arrangement which displays his greatness to the world. This is Matthew's way of saying to his friends, you will not understand my book and you won't understand the king unless you know that the Lord Jesus does not drop straight from heaven in a TARDIS. He doesn't come direct line with no context, no history. He, the Lord Jesus is not a standalone island. No, He comes with centuries and centuries and centuries of wait and longing, longing for great David's greater son. Oh, the promise to David, Matthew's readers say, the promise to David is everything to us. And so, I want to say this to us. Here's application in this for us this morning. If Jesus is king forever, let me say two things. It means a warning for us, and it means comfort. Warning and comfort. Here's the warning. Don't drift from Him. Don't drift from Him. Jesus is King forever, so do not drift from Him, friends. <clears throat> you know, one of, one of the things you notice and learn over the years, sadly, you learn that some of us, some of us here in, in this room this morning won't be here in five years' time. And it's not because we've moved to a different church or we've gone to somewhere else or new work or something like that. The reality is that it will be because we've moved away from Christ, because we've left Him, we've we've drifted. Many of you know that. If you look back, think about Trinity five years ago, that's what's happened, hasn't it? People move on, people come and go, and some people, their love for Christ goes cold, and they drift. Matthew wants us to know this morning, friends, be very careful where you are with this king. You cannot escape a king who lives forever. You you cannot flee him. You might drift from him, but you cannot escape him. You either live with him through time, or you meet him at the end of time. Do you remember what he says at the end of the gospel? All authority all authority in heaven on earth is given to me. Here's the second application. Don't be afraid. Friends this morning, brothers and sisters, don't be afraid. I think we're fearful, aren't we, in life? I think about this at my stage of life. We're fearful because nothing lasts forever. Nothing lasts forever. Nothing. No one. It, It all goes. Everybody leaves. Everyone dies. I saw, I saw the most wonderful uh, clip on social media a couple of weeks ago. Some of you know the name Amal Rajan, the BBC journalist. He's uh, become quite prominent over the years. I think he's now hosting University Challenge on TV. And in a short, a short clip, Amal Rajan was interviewed by Gabby Logan, the TV presenter. She, she had him on her show And in a space of about two minutes, Amal Rajan talked about his father dying, and he said, my father died about three months ago, and he said, since he died, there isn't a single morning I haven't woken crying. I've cried for weeks, he said. I wake in the night, my pillow soaked in my tears. And he said, I had no idea his death was going to affect me like that, no idea it was going to hit me like that. When you look at a journalist like that, you see him interviewing people, you see his sharpness of intellect, you see his life in order, he's making everything work, and then he gives you a glimpse, he pulls back the curtains, and you discover a man just the same as me, same as you, weak and sore, that the most precious thing he had in the world did not last forever. Our brothers and sisters this morning, we have... A forever king. Do you know that? A forever king. What are Jesus' very last words? Behold, I am with you always, always, always to the end of the age. A forever king means do you know what it means? It means a no more world. If you have a forever king, it means a no more world. One day there will be no more tears no more sickness, no more death, no more dying. The only reason that no more world exists is because he is forever. If he lives forever, that is not ordinary, is it? It's not, it's not normal. Oh, the marvel of his claims this morning. Do, do you know anybody else speaks like this? All authority in heaven on earth, and I am with you always to the end of the age. Oh, the greatness, the grandeur, the wonder, the marvel of who He is and who He claimed to be. So, here's the question. If that is true, where does the humility come from? How how do we see the other side of John Stott's equation, the lowliness? Where is the lowliness? I want you to meet the king's second father, son of Abraham son of Abraham. And I want to finish with this. One more, one more thing to see, and then we're done. Three, three, three points. Number one, Jesus is king. Number two, Jesus is king forever. And number three, Jesus is king forever for everyone. Jesus is king forever for everyone. I will raise up your offspring to sit on your throne forever. Promise to David, All nations on earth will be blessed through you, promise to Abraham. Do you remember Genesis 12? All nations on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. It means that all the way through the Old Testament, people are saying, where is the forever king, and where is the blessing to the nations? How will will the king live forever, and how will he welcome everyone? Jesus is king. It's amazing. Jesus is king forever. It's incredible. King forever for everyone. You mean me? You? Us in Aberdeen, of all places? Look again at the end of the gospel. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All nations. I want you just to put your eyes on Matthew's genealogy again. Do you notice how Matthew does it? Do you notice how he, he paints the end of that story, where Jesus finishes in chapter 28? He paints the end of the story into the beginning of his story. Okay, so I hope, you, I, hope you, I hope you clock this as we were going through reading it. A genealogy here is all about fathers, right? The father of, the father of, the father of. But Of course, we know that that only works if there are women involved as well. It takes two to tango. So if you're tracing the great king, the forever king's line, all the way down through the ages, you've got Abraham, you've got David, surely he's going to mention the great mothers in Israel's history. You're going to reach in this genealogy for the great matriarchs of the past, aren't you, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah? Surely they're going to be here. Did you notice, friends, not one of them is mentioned, not one of them included. Instead, who do we have? Some of you have heard me say this before. Who do we have included? Instead, we have shady ladies, ladies with names, ladies with histories, with reputations, kind of reputations to ruin any family reunion. Reputations to blot anybody's copybook. What is Matthew doing? Verse 3 Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Genesis 38 Tamar seduces her father in law. She plays the harlot to deceive. Friends, did you know this morning Jesus has David and Abraham as his father, and he has? Tamar the harlot as his mother, his grandmother, great-great-great-grandmother. Verse 5, Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. Ruth, verse 5, Ruth the Moabitess. And the fourth woman, not not even named in verse 6. I think verse 6 is so So telling, isn't it? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. By not naming her, it's a way of saying, look at what happened to her. She wasn't even David's wife. He took someone else's wife. Maybe it highlights the sin of David in, in doing this to her. Friends, four shady ladies in the Old Testament, three of whom are famous in the old testament for their sexual indiscretions and misadventures their illicit unions and look more than this all four of them famous for being gentiles non-jews ah uh, here is matthew starting the king's story with a wrinkle in the national pride ah oh, there there's a problem here isn't there for ethnic cleansing for royal superiority now, for, for here is the dirty washing, friends, hung out in public, not stuffed away in a corner, not cut out of the photo album. You know, some photo albums, the kids are turning the pages, turning the pages, blank page. What happened there, Mum and Dad? We don't talk about that. Keep moving. No, the, the opposite. Here it is, friends. The Bible does not have cancel culture. Do you know that? We are not cancel culture people. No, we do not airbrush. We do not cover up. We do not whitewash and cover things over. This is different. This king is different. Can you see his humility? Can you just begin to even taste it this morning? You know how you know you belong to Jesus. Jesus you know that you belong to him when you see that he came for someone like you someone like me when you realize there is no one he will not welcome nowhere he will not go you see it's the beauty of this family tree isn't it this genealogy listen what one commentator says this one one gets the impression that matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them into his record, and so to preach the gospel even in his genealogy. He is preaching the gospel in his genealogy. Oh, friends, genealogies preach the gospel. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, oh, you are so important, Matthew says, but would you mind just taking a seat for a moment? For I want to show the world that God's gospel is deep, deep, deep. Sinners can be forgiven. And I want to show the world that God's gospel is wide, wide. Gentiles can be included. Well, we don't sing that song anymore, do we? Deep and wide. Do you know that song, deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. That's what Matthew is saying. The depth is running through the centuries. The width is running through the centuries. The doors are coming off the hinges. It's being opened and opened and opened. And look who's coming in. Oh, friends, there is Gentile, prostitute, incestuous blood, Flowing through the veins of Jesus' family tree. How incredible. And it does not tarnish him or ruin him. No, look at chapter 1, verse 21. The angel saying to Joseph, son of David, Do not fear. Take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name. Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. N- not, not his sins. Do you notice? Verse 20, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's such a beautiful, subtle hint. In verse 16 of the genealogy, we have father, 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 Jacob, the father of Joseph, expecting it to be the father of Jesus. But no, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. A little hint, this man is not the child's father. No, this child is different. Born into this family, adopted into this family, part of this family line, but not tarnished by this family line. No, he is born of Mary so that his humanity is true, but he is not born of Joseph so that his humanity is new you see it? He is true human. He is new human. So, I simply want to invite you this morning to wonder with me, to, to look upon this, to wonder at the marvelous condescension of the King. I want you to wonder at the marvelous condescension of the one who was so high, becoming, oh, so lowly. And coming to you and I, coming oh so close. Some, some of you know theologians speak of the, 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 the two states of Christ, the humiliation of the Son and the exaltation of the Son. His humiliation on the cross and His exaltation in His resurrection and return to the Father in glory. But, but look, His humiliation is not a fixed point. Christ's humiliation is not a fixed point. It's not a single moment. Instead, it is a line you can trace downwards as the eternal Son chooses in humility to come and to join himself to human nature in a virgin's womb. But look, Matthew says, look, even there, even that is not where the humiliation begins. Did you notice the very first words of verse 1, the book of the genealogy. That is literally the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. That's the word genealogy, the genesis, the beginning. The, The book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. Matthew's point is that the story of the king doesn't begin with his arrival in a manger in Bethlehem. Friends, it begins centuries, centuries earlier in Israel's story. And more than that, more than that, listen to Charles Spurgeon. Oh, what marvelous condescension that God should even have a genealogy. Isn't that amazing? That God should even have a beginning. For he who was in the beginning had no beginning with God. He was there before time began. There never was when he was not. And yet he chose to have a family line, a family tree. He chose to come as one of us, a son in David's line. You know what they say? I'm sure you've heard this said, you can choose your friends, but you cannot choose your family. But Jesus did. Jesus did, didn't He? And look who He chose. That's Matthew's point. Look where He began with fallen sinners. The this is Matthew's way of saying Jesus is going right back to the beginning. He's beginning again and he's choosing the fallen race to rescue it, to save it. I want to ask you a question, my final question this morning, and it's is this. Have you learned yet to tell your story as part of Christ's story? Have you learned to tell your story? Your individual, what, 20 years, 25, 30, 50, 60, 70, 80, some of us nearly 90 years? Have you learned to tell your story as part of His story? The the beginning, the book of the beginning of Jesus Christ. Here we are still at the start of 2024, the beginning of a new year. Where are your New Year's resolutions this morning? 24th of January, 21st of January. They're hanging maybe, some of us, by a thread, aren't they? New beginnings come and go. We forget them quickly. I want to say to you, the, the only new beginning you really need is this one. The only new beginning you really need is this one. God beginning all over again with Jesus. He is the new beginning we all need. Have you learned yet to tell your story as part of his story? So it's one of the things that happens in church. It's one of the great joys, people coming and going. <clears throat> After I've forgotten somebody's name about three weeks in a row, and then I speak to them again, and I realize they're sticking around here. So I say to them, T- tell me about you. Tell me about yourself. Those next moments are very, very revealing. You, you either get... Confident fact, somebody says, I'm from here, I've done this, I've done that. But sometimes you get, when I say tell me about yourself, you get dropped eyes, staring at the floor. There's nothing worth saying. Nothing worth saying that isn't shameful or isn't painful. I want to ask you, friends do you look at the floor because of your story? You look at the floor because of your story. It's your past as long as your arm. Brothers and sisters, look at the family the Lord Jesus joined. Are you going to tell me this morning you're worse than this? Worse than her? Worse than him? People say to me sometimes, oh, no, I'm not like him. He's a patriarch of the church. I'm not like her, the matriarchs of the church. So, who are you like? Are you like Jesus' grandmothers? Oh, friends, this morning, whatever your identity, whatever your nation, whatever your story, whatever your history, oh, there is room. There is room, there is grace, there is forgiveness. Sometimes we sing these words, pity a helpless sinner, Lord, who would believe your gracious word, but oh my heart with shame and grief, I am a sink, a sink of sin and unbelief. Lord, in your house I read there's room, and venturing hard, behold, I come, but can there, tell me, can there be among your children room for me? The answer is yes. For Jesus is King forever for everyone. Tell me about you, I ask someone. Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear back or for someone to say back, what you need to know about me is that I am His. He, he's my King. He's my Savior. My elder brother, I'm in His family. He came for me. Amen.